This show is brought to you by earpeeler.com. Hey, this is Alan Robert from Life of Agony, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Welcome, one and all, to episode 159 of the Mars Attacks podcast. I'm your host, Victor, and it has been a very, very long time. The last episode that I put out was in April of this year, four months ago. Um, for those of you keeping score, a lot of the same stuff has gotten in the way as what I've talked about in the past, health issues, which now, since 2013, finally seem to be under control. I'm very happy for this. Uh, also family and also running ear peeler and trying to make that work. Um, so that's something that I'll discuss about at length in the near future and the changes that that site will be going under shortly. And uh, yeah, if you're listening to this because you're a VIP for the Nashville Rock and Pod Expo. That means that you're listening to episode number uh, 34 of that series, but it's episode 159 for Mars Attacks. Uh, this will come out later on Mars Attacks. For those of you that don't know what I'm talking about, and you guys are subscribers to Mars Attacks, basically I'm trying to help out the Rock and Pod Expo um, gained some backers for uh, to help fund the expo itself. And what's happened is people that have donated 10 bucks for the expo have had access to a series of interviews that I've done. Like I said, this is episode 34. By the time this weekend is done, I'll have episodes 34, 35, and 36 ready to go. And by the time the expo takes place, which will be two weeks from the day that I'm recording this, there will be over 40 episodes that you can listen to. It'll be um, podcasters and just different behind-the-scenes stuff that I've released and other special episodes of other shows. It's a lot of cool content if you want to check it out. Um, I appreciate anybody that does, and whatever money is left over. Uh, so, for example, if you're listening to this after the expo, there will be more content that's going to be released after. Uh, so it'll definitely be it'll definitely be worth it, I think. So there will be. Um, I'm I'm assuming that you know when I leave this off, it'll be close to 40 episodes or over 40 episodes, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it'll hopefully be closer to 50 and maybe even more than that when it's all said and done. So, um, yeah, so definitely help, help the expo out by backing. All you have to do is donate 10 bucks and you get access to everything. This will be coming out, uh, next month as part of Mars Attacks. So it'll be out in September. There are a few other special Mars Attacks episodes that will be coming out as part of the feed. There will be two others also that you'll be able to get in advance. But um, yeah, so there's that. 
Um, on to today's subject, Alan Robert. This is a treat for me. Uh, Life of Agony is one of my favorite bands, and there's, I mean, I, I don't think you could really say there's a history between Mars Attacks and Life of Agony, but one of my earliest interviews was Joey Z, their guitarist. Uh, I, the one time that I did Talking Metal Live in person from New York City, Joey was that one guest that I secured to come in and do the, the show, which was a, um, a co-branded show there, Mars Attacks and Talking Metal. And uh, as a result, you know, I've always wanted to interview other members of the band. And Alan has always been the lyrical force behind the band. And Alan, Alan is such a creative person. You'll hear him talk about all this stuff. Uh, now, I do want to mention this. Due to everything that I have had going on, and especially due to illness, um, again, there, this is one of these things. I, I don't want it to sound as a cop out or whatnot, but th- these are these are the facts. The facts is that I've been struggling with something since 2013. Um, it is something that just shredded the ever living shit out of me last year. Uh, to the point where, and, and into this year, I'm still recovering. I'm saying that I've finally taken things under, you know, I've finally taken the reins, but, you know, that's the case 99.9% of the time. There's still a lot of fiery hoops that I have to jump through on a daily basis when it comes to diet and different things so that I am not dealing with a ridiculous amount of pain on a daily basis. Um, so... What happened last year was I ended up spending like 15, 20 days in bed because I couldn't move because um, I was just dealing with so much pain. There was nothing that I could do to get rid of it. Um, I finally found a doctor that was interested in what I had going on and they're able to prescribe the right stuff to uh, to get me over everything that I had going on. Um, in the meantime, it was a continuous cycle of being sick, dealing with pain, not being able to eat because that caused more pain, but at the same time, getting sick, um, sometimes going to the bathroom 20 to 30 times a day, and just having, just feeling empty and hungry all the time. So it was always a balance of feeling hungry, dealing with pain, um, or wanting to stuff yourself and knowing that you know, that wasn't going to last. Um, with, like I said, my current meds, all of that is taken care of and I no longer have to deal with it. Um, at least there's there's something in place that I can go and hit the emergency brake per se and, and stop everything that's going on. So um, enough of that stuff. But I did this interview with Alan back in May of last year, back in May of 2017. So... Their um, latest album had just come out, and it is, if you listen to me talk about this album on Talking Metal when I did the year-end review with them, it was my second favorite album of last year. The only album that I think that I listened to more was the Queens of the Stone Age album uh, that came out, but... um, Damn, there, there's tracks off of this that I absolutely love um, that, to me, fit right in with their catalog. And I know that people get hung up on 
just different things and different things with, uh, you know, the transition from Keith to Mina and stuff like that. And it harkens back to me in my mind anyway, of when I worked in the States and I had a boss that refused to let us listen to things like Queen or Living Color or just different things because someone was gay or someone was black or, or things like that. It was, it just didn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense to me that, that that sort of trumped the music to me, a place where there's no more pain is, is to me was one of the best albums of last year. And I still play tracks off of this all the time because I really enjoy the album. If you haven't checked it out, please do yourself a favor and do so. Um, the other thing that is obviously taking place since then is that Sal Abrascato has decided to leave the band, so that isn't discussed at all. Uh, Veronica, Veronica, excuse me, Bolino is the new drummer in the band, and uh, I talk also at length about seeing the band. Uh, I never got to see the band. I was supposed to see them in Bilbao, Spain, but their Spanish tour was canceled. I don't know why. I don't know if it was a promoter's thing, if it was something else. But that um, that interview that I discussed that I wanted to do with them in person never took place. And the show never took place. So that kind of sucks. That was one of my like bucket list things to do was to see them live. I'll have to reserve that for another time. But um, I want to get into... A track right now, which um, Alan talks about. This song, to me, just has a ridiculous riff in it that the second I heard it, I knew it was going to be a mainstay in my, you know, Life of Agony playlist. So this is a track that I want to play for you guys. It's called Write This Wrong. It is off of uh, a place where there's no more pain. Uh, so let's check it out.
Love that song. There's no other way for me to put it. Just absolutely love it. It is one of the songs that I've listened to the most since last year, since I first heard it in, I think I heard it for the first time in March or April of last year. Love, 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 love. So there you go. Uh, Remember to check the band out. They're up on Spotify and all that great stuff on iTunes and whatnot. Support the bands that you love. Uh, Support the podcast at the same time by clicking on the Amazon links that we do have in the show notes of the episode up on MarsAttacksRadio.com. Make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, all that great stuff. You can find all the links to that right there on MarsAttacksRadio.com. Also, Throw me a bone with Patreon or any of that other stuff. You know, you have people that are making six figures off of podcasts that you guys are backing. And to me, it's a joke that they're groveling over money when they're make when they're getting paid by companies a good amount of money to podcast. Uh, not my case. Uh, I'm trying to keep Ear Peeler afloat. So if you like Ear Peeler, you like any of my podcasts, please go to the links to the Patreon and help out. Uh, anything that you um, you know can throw our way is greatly appreciated. Before I forget, I do bring up uh, STP during this conversation and obviously with um, Jeff Gutt being the lead singer. That situation is kind of moot. So, I still brought it up, though, because no one knew what was going on. There were rumors about, you know, Mino wanting to be the lead singer of STP. And, obviously, they went in another direction. But, yes, this is one of the many things that are discussed that you can look back. Or, if you're... If you were to jump in all of a sudden and hear this, say, hey, what the hell is he talking about? They have a lead singer. Yes, I know they do. This was before we knew they had a lead singer or before we knew who it was and whatnot. And if you've read my review online, I rather enjoyed that new STP also. So whatever. Agree, disagree. Your opinion versus mine. (laughs) We all have our very own opinions. So anyway. Let's jump on into this interview with Mr. Alan Robert. So when when the band had signed epic i mean as a fan it seemed like it was a uh, huge accomplishment uh not to say that roadrunner was a you know, bad label or anything but obviously epic is, is such a huge name within the music industry um sure did you guys see this as a big accomplishment as well or was there any sort of hesitation on your behalf or, or from the band's perspective to sign with them i think on paper it seemed like we were really building momentum from when we came back out with the reunion shows in 2003. And we had sold out Irving, two nights at Irving Plaza in minutes. And um, we were touring for two years uh, on the strength of the reunion. And we had some friends 
from the old hardcore community. Um, our friend Mark Newman worked um, at Sony, and he was uh, one of the members of Sheer Terror that we toured with in the early 90s. And uh, he's always been a, a longtime friend, and he introduced us to some folks at Sony who had uh, interest in signing the band. So it seemed like it was it was taking on um, a pretty organic uh, interest over there. Um, obviously, we had a, a built-in fan base, so that was appealing to them. And, um, you know, we had been shopping around, I think, a three or four song uh, demo with songs like Love to Let You Down and Day Died on it. And, um, and they saw it as a, a chance uh, to possibly break this band at rock radio. And um, so on paper, I think um, everything looked like it was kind of crescendoing to uh, signing with a major label for the first time, which was exciting to us because we thought, hey, we'd get the exposure that we were been after um, and kind of like graduating from, a, from an indie uh, metal label. Um, so, you know, we, what transpired after we signed, we had no idea. We had never work with a major label before or that whole corporate environment and um and how decisions are made and and how um intertwined they wanted to be in kind of molding the band we, we that was all new to us so at, at what point did that molding start when you guys were were in the studio writing some of the tracks i know um that in one of the the dvds um Mina refers to uh, "Love to Let You Down," the something to the effect of the song that Epic wrote for us, or or, or something along those lines. At what point did they sort of want to get their mitts on what you guys were doing? Well, I think when Mina says that, that was just kind of sarcastic, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, they were, you know, they were very involved, um, including choosing the producer that would work on the record which we, we happen to like very much. Greg Fiddleman was a great guy, and um, he had worked on the Slipknot record, which we really liked the sound of and the production of. Uh, he went on to uh, to work with Metallica and Rick Rubin on that. And um, so we were, we were excited to work with Greg. Um, we felt like he had the chops and, um, and the passion for the band. Um, and we had a pretty decent budget to do the record. So we were able to move uh, outside of the city, upstate, uh, in Woodstock, New York, rent a, a handmade house in the middle of the woods to kind of get away from everybody and, um, and live there, write there, um, and just kind of, you know, try and cut off all the distractions. But uh, Epic would call us practically every day. Wow. While we were there to check in and, and hear new material. And, you know, that was that was a big headache for us. We didn't expect that, and it put a lot of pressure on us. Um, whereas the new record, uh, A Place Where There's No More Pain, Napalm agreed not to even hear a demo for the material. Wow. And the first, the first time they even heard a note was when we delivered a finished, mastered album. So... It, it was quite the opposite this time around. And I think for the better, you know, the the band finally had 
full creative control. Um, and you know, they left us alone, left us alone to do what we do. And that's the, the most healthy way to make a record. After, you know, everything sort of came apart, um, with the band, you went on to put out an album with a project called, uh, Spoiler NYC. Um, at the time when that came out, I was actually a, uh, uh, somewhat of a fan of another project you had worked on, which was Among Thieves. Um, why was it right for you to work with the um, Spoiler NYC project as opposed to going back to uh, Among Thieves and trying to put that project back together? Um, well, just, just just to jump back, you know, a little bit. Um, you know, we released Broken Valley in 2005. Three months later all the albums were pulled off the shelves. Uh, Epic Records had lost a class action lawsuit. Actually, Sony lost a class action lawsuit put against them by consumers because they had released 12 albums, including ours, with illegal spyware on the CDs to, in their effort to try and prevent piracy. Right. And so once... Once the record got pulled off the shelves after working so hard on the album, um, only for people not to be able to get it, we were crushed. I mean, spiritually, emotionally, in every which way. Um, here, here we were, we put our life's blood into this thing, and you couldn't even find it. And, and with no reason, uh, we had no idea. That that he, that they even did that, um, <clears throat> so you know we started to play less and less. We were kind of disgruntled with the whole music industry at that point, um, and so you know leading to your question, I wanted to get back to having fun playing music again, and that's when I that's when I started Spoiler NYC. And it goes back to my punk rock roots, my love of bands like Social D and Rancid and The Misfits. Um, and I just wanted to do something down and dirty that was fun with my friends. Um, and, uh, and we just pursued that as a fun project. And that's really all it was. And um, there was really no questions. Um, and there was no... Um, nothing uh, really in mind other than uh, trying to have some fun aware in a really dark time. And so the Among Thieves project of the early 2000s, yeah. um, we worked really hard to try and um, to promote the band back then. That was before the LOA reunion in 2003. Um, and we would do showcases for labels, and we ended up signing to Warner Brothers Japan, and we released a full-length studio album and a live album. But that was it had run its course. Gotcha. You know, everyone had moved moved on. Scott Roberts, the guitar player, uh, was playing in Biohazard. Uh, he replaced Evan Seinfeld, um, and he picked up the bass for the for them. Um, so everyone had kind of moved on. Okay, I was I was such a well I had purchased, I guess, was some sort of a, a fan pack there with a T-shirt and, and CDs and whatnot. And I always thought that Seize the Day was 
uh, one of the strongest tracks that come out in the early 2000s. So that's why when everything sort of um, went the way that it did, I, you know, it was one of those things where you have your fingers crossed that you hope that a, that a band gets back together again. Um, uh-huh. but, but I can see from what you're saying that uh, would it be fair to say that Spoiler NYC was almost a reaction to the whole Broken Valley experience to just want to go in the other direction and just forget about what had happened? Oh yeah, it was almost um, a big fuck you to to Sony. In fact, one of the songs "Every Person Is Corrupt," you know, is basically directly towards them um, if you read the lyrics. So, you know, it was definitely a response to everything that had gone on leading up to that point. Okay, and. Obviously, you've gone on to work with um, or partnered up with IDW to release graphic novels and um, uh, worked on different things outside of the music industry. Um, how mm-hmm. fulfilling is that for you in comparison to working within the music industry? Do you get the same sort of you know, feeling when you're creating uh, graphic novels or comic or coloring books, I'm sorry, or any of the like movie projects, do you get the same sort of feelings as when you're working uh, on a Life of Agony album, or is it completely different? Well, they're different in the in the respect that, you know, when I work on a Life of Agony record, it's a collaboration. Um, and when I work on um, any of the book projects, um, it's basically me locked away in a room. Um so it's different dynamic, um, but you know what I found out about myself is that I really enjoy the whole process of taking uh, uh, just a seed of an idea and bringing it into a tangible form, and 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 all the the journey along the way, and um, whether it be a song idea, bringing it to a full length record, or um, you know, a, a character design that you know comes out as a as a book and and translated or adapted into a film. Um, I just like the whole experience uh, of watching that grow, and um, it really doesn't matter what it is. It's just, I guess, it's just being part of the whole creative process for me. Okay. Did working within the music industry help you? when you started uh, working on, on your books and, and other things, or is it completely different one industry to the other? Um, they're similar in the sense of the way you market things and the way that you position yourself in, to compete. Um, it's similar in building a story to get people aware of the project. So all those things are... I learned a lot in the music business on how to do that, and that translated into um, the success of the books. Um, and also working with big companies and um, and people that are passionate about, whether it be music or art, um, in the two industries, uh, how to deal with uh, creative people that are behind the scenes. And, um, and it... it 
it is a big partnership and it's a lot of um it's it's a good balance of uh of kind of, kind of like marketing and also um just developing relationships uh you know I've been with IDW since 2009 now huh. um and so like I've had a lot of long-term uh, relationships and friendships and partnerships with with record companies and book companies and um I think that's all part of it um when when I find good people that I like to work with I like to continue that I don't like to jump around too much Gotcha okay can you draw the um what you just mentioned with the uh, spoiler NYC track that everyone's corrupt um can you draw correlations between that same feeling within both industries or would you say that you know from uh, would you say that the music industry the the souring effect of maybe what you guys dealt with with epic would be worse than the the book industry when it comes to those sort of things you know I, when uh before i hooked up with idw i was all set to self-publish my comic book and um i really didn't have any connections inside that world even though art and comic book um was uh, comic book uh creation was such a big passion of mine even before i got into music um in the early 90s i went to school uh and um art school in the city and had Walt Simonson who drew the Mighty Thor as a teacher so i i had intended on graduating and then trying to get a job in the comic book world um in the early 90s but um you know life of agony uh released our first record in 93 and i wanted to see where that was going to go and it turned into a two decade long career um so uh, that was unexpected, and uh, I had kind of continued doing art uh, all through that time for the band. I, I think I designed every T-shirt the band's ever put out, um, and and artwork for other bands like Three Doors Down and Shine Down and um, Chevelle. Um, so I kept up my chops along the way, and as technology got better with Photoshop and Illustrator and all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very interested in that, and that's something that I didn't learn in school. Um, you know, technology wasn't there in the early 90s, and um, and that's been a big help in, you know, working and being, being able to um, produce my own graphic novels all by myself, you know. now Nowadays, and traditionally, you would have teams of people producing these comic books you know you have your writers and your pencilers your anchors your colorists letterer uh book layout people and i'm doing all those tasks um and and basically handing it off to idw to publish um so it's very hands-on it's very much uh labor love and um i don't know i guess you you learn along the way on the best way to uh tackle each of these things in, in, in those industries. You know, thankfully, I hooked up with uh, IDW, who is also very much like Napalm in the, in the sense that they have a lot of faith in me. They trust me to deliver on time. 
which is a big problem in the industry. People, you know, missing dead deadlines and stuff, especially right. with monthly bo- monthly books. So um, I've proven myself over the last, I don't know, eight years um, that I'm reliable and that I'll do everything I can to promote the books and uh, and put myself out there and and uh, I think there's a lot of um, uh, a lot of uh, you know fans of the music that I do that are interested in the books and, and vice versa. You know, people that have picked up the books that never heard of Life of Agony will go explore that too. So a lot of crossover there. Yeah, I could definitely see that. And obviously, you have different elements and different characters that are from the music industry. So it also leans itself uh, for for that to take place. It's uh, a smart crossover. Well, it's organic, you know, and it's it's real. It's like these are the things that I like. Um, you know, I, I look back at the Kilogy project, and that was basically a mashup of uh, my favorite things, ga- gangster movies, uh, horror, punk rock, um, zombies. <laughs> I, it was kind of... Uh, Throw it in the pot and just stir it up, you know. <laughs> Very cool. And to make a um, a comic reference before we started doing the interview, I mentioned that I was from uh, originally from Morris County. The town where I grew up in is where um, Joe Kubert actually started his school uh, back in the eighties mm-hmm. in uh, in a town called Dover. So, cool. Um, actually, the the town where um, Kirk Hammett played his first show with Metallica there as well. Uh, anyway, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so getting back um, to talking about Life of Agony, um, as a fan, obviously, what had happened with Mina was something that I first learned about uh, via the internet, and it seemed like initially there was some resistance within the band. Um, or, or maybe that's how the the press was portraying it at the time. One of the reasons why I like doing a podcast is because I can talk to someone and find out what actually happens instead of reading what somebody interprets and and writes within an article. Um, mm-hmm. Was there any like internal strife within the band um, due to Mina coming out as a transgender person? Uh, if so. Was it difficult to sort of hash that out and then realize that, you know, the love for the music or the love for that person was more important than maybe any previously preconceived notions? I don't think there was any kind of resentment um, about that. And no one, else, I don't think, had any uh, bias or anything towards that, towards her, uh, you know, coming out at all. Um, so... And I, I really haven't read that either, um, that people um, in the media, you know, thought that the band was against her or anything like that. I mean, clearly we're not. And um, if anything, we're her strongest allies. And, um, and you know, since then we've done a lot of interviews together, and I've learned a lot about how she views it too. And something that really uh, hits home for me is when she says that you know, as she's made this transition, we've also transitioned with her. Um, and I think that's absolutely true. You know, um, 
I think that we've all adjusted to this change and in a very positive way. And um, it takes uh, true friends to recognize what, um, what someone's going through and how they could help and just being open and and um and just uh supportive really and uh, I think we've proven that to each other and uh and what we've done over the last two years um has been monumental it's been a big milestone for this band um to come together after something like that and to uh kind of rebound even stronger. And and even um, beyond the band, I would think, uh, because, I mean, obviously you have other celebrities, per se, that have um, come out, but, uh, I mean, I think, especially given the music that Life of Agony has always given us, um, the, the, it has always been about emotion, it has always been about overcoming struggles and you know, um, as as one of your song titles is hope, looking for hope and things like that, it seems like um, with with her coming out and saying that, the, the lyrics to a lot of the, the music can be applied to what she has gone through, but also to what a lot of other people have gone through uh, with their lives. Did Do you feel that the album was written specifically... Um, due to those struggles, or were the lyrics written very organically, as you mentioned before? No, I don't think it was... Um, I don't think the lyrics deal with her transition at all, to be honest. Um, okay. I wrote a lot of the lyrics on this record, and then we uh, collaborated on some songs, too. And um, so I think they stem from just organic thoughts and um and feelings about who we are in 2017 on um, struggles that we deal with and people close to us what they're dealing with so i don't think there's really any uh specific songs about Mina's transition on the record okay um from some of the reviews that i've read online they've sort of hinted towards that so that's why i wanted to to bring it up, I, I mean, as as I mentioned, I think a, a lot of the lyrics, you know, that you guys have written from from the start, have always been about various types of struggles, and and I always uh, personally, from hearing the album uh, from the first listen to now, I've always it's it seemed to me like it's been an extension of what you guys have done in the past. Yeah, I I would agree. Okay, uh, you mentioned before that. That before um, you had prepared the album, that Napalm hadn't even heard uh, a single note uh, off of the album. They hadn't heard demos or anything else. They had enough faith uh, to believe in what you guys were doing. Did you guys have any material ready before getting the deal with Napalm? Or was everything already in demo stages uh, by the time you had started looking for a deal? I think there was only one song seed. Um, that was written around that time. Um, we, we didn't want to, um, really go to 
put too much into it before we knew that there was a real opportunity to put a record that we wanted to um, put out. You know, we weren't into the whole experience that we um, went through with Sony with them being super um, involved. And so if we weren't going to get that type of creative freedom, um, we didn't want to really do a new album. So, you know, to, to spend a bunch of time demoing stuff and and all that, uh, it just it didn't make sense to us. We wanted to know that we had the deal in place that we wanted uh, before we invested any time into it. Okay. And how how long did it start, or how long did it take, excuse me, for you guys to start working away at these at the songs and and the songs actually starting to come together uh very quickly um i think the first song that we wrote for this album was right this wrong okay and it's just it just started to flow after that we um we worked on this record in a lot of different ways um it was a much different experience than we had done in the past where we would uh, meet up at a rehearsal studio and trade ideas in the same room. Uh, we didn't do that this time around. A lot of it um, was trading audio files over email and, and working on it remotely. And, um, you know, we don't live all in the same place anymore. We all have families and and different schedules so that made the most sense for us and it also uh it allowed us to have the freedom to kind of listen and expand on ideas on our own time rather than kind of throw ideas out on the spot and try and force it to work um that was one of the bigger differences making this album because we had the time and we had the uh, the ability to um, sit with it longer and to kind of weed out the ideas that weren't really working and to focus on the stuff that really was working and to um, just see every part of every song to its full potential. Okay. Uh, so the entire album was written with you guys basically spread out all over the place, or did you guys actually get into the studio to record the final product that we hear? Well, we did record it, um, you know, sections of it together, but then there's also a lot of um, stuff that we did one-on-one with the producer, uh, Matt Brown, and uh, in, in various studios. So... Um, I would say, you know, most of the writing was re- done remotely, but then when we actually worked on the album, then, um, you know, band members were present and stuff to get that done. Wow, that's that, that's pretty cool because the album, to me, from start to finish, sounds as if you guys are in, are in the studio jamming away at it. It sounds, you know, very atypical for what you hear in in 2017 in the sense that it it doesn't sound... Um, you know, like it's following any formula. It doesn't seem like, I guess everything that you described when you mentioned that you guys 
you know, took your time and didn't want to fall into into certain pitfalls. I I get it from from listening to it. And I mean, you mentioned right this wrong. I mean, right this wrong has some some riffs and things in there that I mean are just incredible. They make you want to get up and and move, for lack of a better term, you know. So I I, I get mm-hmm. what you're saying. It's it's amazing to hear to hear that 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 it was written that way and and put together that way. Well, I think. Um... There's a lot you can learn by just sitting and listening to something over and over again on your own time in the way that you want to hear it, you know. Everyone has a different different creative spaces, you know, whether it's listening to something at the end of the night in headphones um, or driving around in your car and blasting something on your speakers (laughs) or or whatever it is. and for us, this was the best way to work together, you know, because everyone does have their different schedules and different lives. And um, I think when, uh, you know, when you're in your early 20s or even late teens like we were on River on Dread, you know, it, you know, going to the rehearsal studio was a big event, you know, <laughs> and... Um, we would actually walk there with all our equipment and our friends, and we would almost make a show out of it every time we would rehearse, um, jumping around the room and um, with, like, 20 of our friends. It was almost like mini shows. Right. Um, <clears throat> but after have lived <laughs> a few lifetimes already, uh, uh, you know, uh, doing this band, you know, we've been in the band longer than we haven't been at this point. Right. Um, I think part of the excitement for us now is to sit back and listen to uh, a finished song that we all worked on together. And, and that's like, that's the feeling that we're going for, something that's undeniable and um, that we're all really proud of, you know, um, to keep the energy up and to keep everyone's focus um, on that finish line, you know. And, um, you know, the the album took about a year between all the writing and recording. Uh, Originally, we wanted it out in 2016, but we um, couldn't get a mastering date um, before the holidays, and we didn't want to rush it. So we wanted Ted Jensen to um, master the album, and um, so we waited till the beginning of January, and the label needed a couple of months set up to promote it. So, you know, that's why we ended up here um, with a end of April release. But um, we figured we waited 12 years. What's a couple more months? You know. <laughs> right. And and I mean, for 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 anyone out there that's listening to this, I mean, the the proof is in the pudding. That you know, you you can honestly tell when a band has rushed something when you know the label has said all right here's uh, this is the money record this you know in x amount of time and we just need to put out a product as opposed to something that's you know organically grown and recorded and and as you're saying you guys just took the proper amount of time to make sure that all the steps were were in place and that it came out the way that you guys wanted well it was important to us you know we we felt like if this was going to be the last LOA record, mm-hmm. which, you know, 
with all the breakups and <laughs> and hiatuses we've had, it, it, may, it very well be. Um, you never know. Nothing's guaranteed in this world. But if we were going to end on one note, we wanted it to be great. And, and that's why we wanted to outdo the other records sonically. We would A, B, River Undred and Ugly uh, in the mixing process to make sure that the guitars were bigger, that the mix was louder, that the, the, the harmonies and, and all the layers and, and subtleties were there to, to kind of um, eclipse you know, the older material sonically and we wanted to be able to listen to this record as as a fan um because we did have regrets about the early stuff and um and the way some of those records were done um and believe it or not <laughs> you know uh i recorded the whole ugly record with a blown bass amp um that we discovered in the mixing process, but it was too late to re-record it. So, you know, there's like things like that, that I, I listen to that album in a certain way because I know the behind the scenes stuff that, uh, that went along with it. Um, and a lot of the drama, um, involved. So it's hard to listen to some of the early stuff for me, uh, just because of all that baggage, I guess. Wow. But, so you, you have, I mean, obviously, you have a lot of fans from back then, so I mean, that that's that's interesting that you probably have a lot of people praising you for it, and at the same time, you have you know that's this mental picture going on in your head as to the blood, sweat, and tears and everything that went into them. Yeah, sure, absolutely. <laughs> awesome. And um, it's funny too because uh, when Ugly was released, it was so such a departure in sound from Rivers that. Um, a lot of people didn't like that record when it first came out, but now, you know, all these years later, people praise it as, you know, one of our best. So, you know, sometimes you need to step away and and, and let it organically kind of evolve. And that's interesting to hear, because obviously growing up in the, in northern New Jersey, we had, you know, SOU, and, and actually when River Runs Red came out, I was in college radio. So, I mean, mm -hmm. that album was huge for the for the station where I was at. And then hearing Ugly come out, obviously, as you're saying, it was a departure, but a station like SOU still played the ever-living shit out of the album. I mean, they played yeah. a lot. Well, of... <laughs> SOU has always been supportive, you know. Yeah. Um, they played this band on Street Patrol before the album. So, um, And, in fact, they just... WSU presented our record release show in New York City last Friday. Mm -hmm. um, so they you really can't ask for more support than that. I mean, you're talking about decades. Excellent. And uh, speaking of that, you guys just did a few shows in the in the New York area, and you're going to be doing some some more touring. Um, how extensive uh, is the tour going to be that you guys are, are going to be on? Uh, we have dates going through uh, August right now, and we're looking at September, October um, to fill those weeks as well. And uh, we're just going to continue to um, to go out there as long as it's fun for us. And uh, that's really the top priority: is if it's something fun that makes sense, then we'll want to do it. And you know, that's something that 
we've learned along the way too because in the past like on the Broken Valley uh tour we agreed to do kind of mismatched um tours where we weren't really that comfortable and we were forced into it and we it the results showed we you know we were, the band was unhappy um maybe some of the performances weren't all that great and so you look at the stuff that we're doing now in comparison and it's like these are shows that we agreed to because we thought they would be fun and a, and a good fit for us and um i think we're playing some of the best shows of our whole career now how difficult is it to uh put the new set list together um well we uh i think it's a good mix of the old and new you know, we don't want to introduce too much new material right away. We want to let the record grow. But we're playing um, about three new songs in okay. the set. Mm-hmm. Given your fan base that has always been a, a pretty diehard fan base in, in a lot of parts of the world. Um, I, I mean, obviously, the I'm assuming that the idea is to add more tracks off of the album. As as time goes by, I mean, would it be fair to say that you think that the the fan base will in, enjoy everything that you guys are going to do live off of this album? I think live is a completely different animal, and even some of the more mellow tracks um, come across in a different way when you play them live. And it's it's happened on all our records, uh, really. They just have they take on a whole different level. Um, when you put it in the live setting, even something a track like "Other Side of the River" off of "Ugly," uh, which seems like a pretty straightforward four-four uh, rock song, um, it has a lot of energy live that maybe doesn't come across on the album. Yeah. Um, so, I think some of the heavier stuff on a new record is really going to translate really well. Um, especially when people know it. Songs like Meet My Maker or Write This Wrong, like we talked about. Yeah. Um, even World Got Mad, is because of the tempo, it's so upbeat and it's got that pump to it. I'm excited to to really see what that, what happens, uh, especially overseas with that song. Very cool. And um, the, the other thing that a lot of people have gone... Um, sort of ape shit in the press about on the net is that uh, I I take it that this is sort of joking, but Mina sort of threw it out there that she would be the perfect lead singer for STP. Um, would there be any room for uh, STP and Life of Agony to coexist? And and do you think that that was actually uh, her being serious? Well, I think um, when she did say that, it was uh, actually an old article that was um, put out there the week of our release. Um, okay. And it, I think that is something that interests her. And it did when they were looking for a singer a, a year ago. Um, I think she put her hat in the ring for that. Um, so there's no um, secret about that. Um, can they coexist? I'm sure anything could happen. Uh, I think it would be awesome for her if she did that. Um, but at the same time, I know that she's very focused on what we're doing here. And uh, I'm very proud of this major accomplishment of making this album together. So, um, 
I don't know, man. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what else to say about that other than that. Hey, you know, the world is full of lots of opportunities. Yeah. And and I think there's room for lots of different things. Just like I'm, I'm drawing these books. You know, uh, you kind of you find balance in the things that you want to do in life. Sure. Um, and there's only so many hours in the day, and you can only be in one place physically at one time. So. Uh, it's all about making decisions and what what's going to work out for the bigger picture. And um, I'm sure if if it was meant to be, it, it is. It will happen. Where should people go to keep up with uh, what you have going on? Uh, not only with uh, obviously Life of Agony, but what you have going on with all your comic work. Um, I have a website, AlanRobert.com. It's kind of like a hub for everything that I do. Um. Life of Agony has uh, lifeofagony.com um, and my latest horror coloring book, The Beauty of Horror. Uh, I have a new book coming out in September, volume two of that. I'm working hard every day drawing that while I'm home um, so I could deliver that to IDW before I get too crazy with the touring. Um, and that's been a lot of fun. So, uh, People can find that at thebeautyofhorror.com, and um, yeah, that's about it. We're, you know, I'm on uh, all the social media, a Robert on Twitter, and uh, Alan Robert six 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 on Instagram. Hey, this is Alan Robert from Life of Agony, and you're listening to Mars Attacks.
go a little Meet My Maker off of a place where there's no more pain from Life of Agony. Definitely check out the album if you haven't done so already. And I recommend it, whether Aaron Camaro approves that uh, they don't have Whitfield Crane anymore or not. That's another story all onto itself. <laughs> um, we know how much of an ugly kid Joe Mr. Camaro is, so there you go. All right, man. Thanks to everyone that has listened to this episode. Hope you guys have enjoyed the interview. And like I said, hopefully there's the plan is to have more Mars Attacks coming to you shortly without this big of a break. We're going to leave you here with a little bit of Song for the Abused by Life of Agony. See ya. I cast the blame, you point at me. I'm so ashamed of my jealousy. I feel the rage occur to me. But I don't do a goddamn thing. I see the
Thank you for listening to the Mars Attacks podcast. This concludes our show. 